Okay, this Shabbos we have the privilege of reading Parshish Truma and with it an introduction to the Mishkan, to the story of the tabernacle, which begins somewhat abruptly here in the beginning of Parshish Truma. And I say it begins abruptly because Mishpatim just ends with the reaffirmation of the experience Nasa Venishma. Mishpatim ends with, after the long litany of laws, the uh, repeat of the experience of getting the Torah at Harsinai, Nasa Venishma and the prophecy at the mountain. And then all of a sudden we're thrust into the mitzvah of the Mishkan. There's no context which is provided. In fact, maybe we'll study later on with Parshas Kisisa, it's unclear. Was the Mishkan given before the Chet Egel, before the sin of the golden calf? Was the Mishkan given as a response to the sin of the golden calf? Things seem somewhat out of order here because we have the whole discussion and we have the uh, details of the Mishkan and the utensils therein provided in Truma Tetzaveh. Then we have Kisisa, which is the sin of the golden calf. And then we have Ayaka Pekude, which is a almost verbatim repetition of the Mishkan and the utensils. So Mishkan begins, it's kind of abrupt right here. Go collect money and build for me a tabernacle. Is that positioned to be just a continuation of the, of the mitzvahs of Mishpatim? honest weights and measures and be kind to the poor and keep the sabbatical year and, and visit uh, three times a year Israel and uh, uh, the indentured slave servant and all the rules of Mishpatim and one of the mitzvahs, the next law is build a Mishkan or is the Mishkan the historical response, God's response, God's antidote to the Chet HaEgel that will leave for another time but I just uh, am pointing out to you that Truma begins somewhat abruptly. As is our custom, we'll review the uh, Parsha generally and then begin to analyze a few psukim. So Truma begins with the mitzvah to build a tabernacle, a resting place for God, the obligation of v'yichuli Truma, collect for me Truma. Of course, commentators are puzzled. Why doesn't it say yitnuli Truma, give to me? What do you mean v'yichuli, take from me? Why take from me as opposed to the yitnu, give to me? Take from every person, everyone who has a generous heart. Take as trumasi the give. This is a truma, and so on. And it lists everything that needs to be given, everything that needs to be collected. And then we have the famous Pasuk. God says, what's the reason for this? Why are you running a capital campaign? Because you're going to be building a home. In other words, if our Sinai represented, if our Sinai represented the marriage of the Jewish people and the Almighty. The mountain was held over their head like a chuppah. Har Sinai, God betrothed us, we became wed to God, there was a marriage, there was a connection, a bond, a commitment that was created at Har Sinai. Har Sinai was the chuppah, Har Sinai was the wedding. Well, what does the couple do after the wedding? Maybe they go to a hotel for the evening. <laughs> what do they do after that, the next day? They got to create and set up a home to be able to move in together. So that's what God says. God says after the experience, the incredible intimacy, the emotional high, the bond, the connection that we've created at Harsinai, we've got to create a home. We're going to move in together. Notice they move in together after the marriage. No. Back then, that was the traditional way of, of doing it. And then we'll get to, by the way, the utensils. A home needs utensils in order to function. That's what the parasha will deal with, the utensils. So God says, Make for me a sanctuary, a home. And of course, all of them before and pick up, Rashi among them. Make for me in the plural a tabernacle. I will dwell in them. Mikdash is singular. Bisocham is plural. What do you mean? Where's God going? In one home or in many homes? And of course the answer is Bilvavi Mikdash Evna. The answer is in my heart I will create a Mikdash. Every one of us is a walking base on Mikdash. We welcome, we create a physical space to connect to God. But ultimately the success of connecting to God in that physical space is depending, dependent on our connecting to God in our hearts. We can build the Mikdash but b'shachanti b'socham, God has to dwell in us. And of course, much ink has been spilled on that concept, on that verse. That is not our subject for today. The first kli that's, uh, that's described in the Mikdash, by the way, the utensils are all described. The, the, the building of the utensils, before you get to the building of the tabernacle itself. The dimensions of the temple, before the tabernacle. So, the first uh, utensil is the aron, is the ark. The ark is made out of gold, 
the outside of the insole, the kesha wood in the middle, the cover of the ark, which is what we're going to discuss today, what was housed within the ark? The luchos. What else? The broken luchos. Luchos vishivrei luchos menachem ba'aron. Both the whole luchos and the broken luchos. A very powerful message. We didn't discard the broken luchos. One would have thought, who wants those memories of the broken luchos? Get rid of them, chuck them, throw them, bury them, trash them. Why would you possibly hold on to them? Judaism teaches that the Aron, to be sanct- to be sacred, to be sanctified, to be holy, one has to hold on to and treasure the complete luchos and the broken luchos. We grow as a result not only of the successful moments of our lives, but the broken moments of our lives also contribute to who we are, our success, and where we're going. So the Yaron had the luchos, vishivre luchos. The broken, uh, broken tablets were also there. Then we have the construction of the cover of the ark, which is what we're going to study in depth. The cover of the ark had within it the kruvim, the, uh, what are they called, cherubs? And then you have the construction of the shulchan, the table, and the way that it was constructed with the complete with the rings on the sides and a rod that went through them so that it could be carried. And then we have the construction of the menorah and the manner in which the menorah was constructed. Very interesting, the way the menorah was constructed. And we once did a series of classes comparing the Torah's description of the menorah, which the menorah as it's depicted on the Arch of Titus, which is probably the most accurate depiction we would have of the actual menorah that was transported to Rome after uh, Titus conquered the Beis HaMikdash. So you have the construction of the, of the menorah, and then you have the cover of the tabernacle, and then you have the walls of the tabernacle and its dimensions, how it was constructed, the crushum, the planks, they were put together. Um, uh, and then you have the parochas, and then you come back to another one of the uh, utensils, so to say, which was the altar, the mizbeach, atzeshitim, made of acacia wood, the courtyard of the tabernacle, its dimensions and how it was constructed. And then if you're in the article, page 463, you have a little picture there of the chatzah, the mishkan, the mizbech, the choshes, the copper altar. You have the hangings, you have the curtains, you have the ramp, and so on and so forth. That's this week's Pasha. Okay? As an aside, even before we get into what I want to study, which is uh, one of the utensils in particular, was it a mitzvah to build these utensils? Was it a mitzvah to build them? Should it be counted as a mitzvah? So the Rambam writes, and the Rambam's for, you know, we, we have a tradition, the Gemara at the end of Makos has a tradition that there are how many mitzvahs? 613 mitzvahs. Somebody was at the Panther game two nights ago and told me there was a Jewish player, I think he shot his 613th goal, and they played Havanagila. <laughs> Something like that. So even the Florida Panthers at a hockey game, they know the number 613, right? If you ever find a suitcase, and on the tag it says Goldstein, Feinberg, Berger, you know, Katz, Cohen, try 613 as the uh, code. There's an excellent chance that the lock will unlock. Every Jew, 613 on their briefcase, on their suitcase, the worst kept secret among the Jewish people. So 613 is a very uh, very popular number. Taryag, 613. In Gemara at the end of Makos, we have a tradition, there's 613 mitzvos. If we start with that premise, there's 613 mitzvos, it becomes a struggle. If you go through the Torah and you start counting, you'll arrive at much more than 613. So what you have to do is come up and formulate a number of rules to determine what will count as a mitzvah so that you'll arrive at that whole number of 613. At that number of 613. Many, 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 many of our sages throughout the ages have written books in which they attempt to create rules and protocols to arrive at the number 613. The Rambam has his Sefer HaMitzvos, his 613 commandments. How he arrives at them? He describes in his introduction what are his rules that guide him. The Ramban, Nachmanides, has his commentary, his criticism of the Rambam's count and basically assembles his own count. The the um, smag, Sefer Mitzvahs Gedolos, the Smak, the Sefer Mitzvahs Ketanos, the Bahag, the Balalachas Gedolos. The list goes on and on and on of our great rabbis who arrived at the number 613. So do you count the building of the Kalim in the Mishkan among your Mitzvahs, the 613? So the Rambam says no. The Rambam does not count these Mitzvahs. Why not? Well, the Rambam, first of all, remember, by the way, has all these rules. Is it Lodoros? Are they mitzvahs that will last perpetually, in perpetuity, have to be repeated? Were they one-time mitzvahs? One of the Rambam's rules is, is, rules is if it was one time, you don't do it again. 
This is not a one-time mitzvah. We had a first base of Mikdash, we had a second base of Mikdash. Please God, we'll have a third base of Mikdash. One of the great institutions in Yerushalayim is Machon HaMikdash. If you've never been, you should go to Machon HaMikdash and you'll see they're constructing the kalim for the base of Mikdash. In fact, when I went on Harabayas a few years ago with a group from the shul, we took a tour with one of the rabbis from Machon HaMikdash. In the court, in the... Uh, uh, on the platform where you're about to go down the steps towards the Kotel today, there's an incredible menorah. It's covered in glass. I don't know if you've seen it recently. It is constructed exactly according to the dimensions and uh, of the material as described in our Parsha. So I asked this rabbi from Machon Mikdash. I said, oh, Machon Mikdash, you guys are the ones who made that replica of the menorah, right? He looked at me all insulted and he said, replica? Uh. Replica? It's not a replica. It's the menorah. It's going to be used in the next base of Nektash. We're ready to go. So the Kalim are a mitzvah in perpetuity. So why doesn't the Rambam count them? Oh, so the Rambam has a rule. He says, if you have a broad overarching mitzvah that's made up of sub-categories or sub-mitzvahs, the Rambam's rule is the only carry counts the overarching mitzvah. I'll give you three, two examples. One is the mitzvah of bringing a korban. Mitzvah of bringing a korban is made up of many things. For example, there are four things in particular. Four avodos. You have to uh, shecht and gather the blood and sprinkle the blood to be makhted. There's all kinds of mitzvahs related to, um, related to korban. The Rambam doesn't count them all. He just counts one mitzvah of bringing a korban with the assumption that the sub-mitzvahs are subsumed under the one mitzvah. I'll give you another example. The Rambam does not count 39 malachas for Shabbos. 39 separate f- prohibitions of creative labor. The Rambam says, you got to keep Shabbos. Ah, within keeping Shabbos, there are 39 biblical categories of creative labor. Okay, the Rambam subsumes them under the great, under the, uh, the whole mitzvah. The Rambam doesn't count them. The Ramban Nachmanides, in his commentary on the Rambam, disagrees. And he says as follows. He says, you're right, Rambam. When it comes to any kli, any utensil in the Mishkan, that also had a mitzvah associated with it, I understand you don't count the building of the utensil, you just count the mitzvah. So for example, the Ramban Nachmanides agrees, don't count a mitzvah to construct the menorah. Why? Because there's a mitzvah to light the menorah. So if you count the mitzvah to light the menorah, building the menorah is implied, and therefore you don't need to count it separately. The Ramban says, I get it. And the same can be said for the Mizbeach, where you have to bring a korban, and the Shulchan, where you have the Lechem Apana, and so on and so forth. What about, says the Ramban, the Aron, the Ark? Is there a mitzvah associated with the Ark? Says the Ramban, no. And therefore... Since the Aron has no mitzvah for which you can, that implies its construction, he counts the Ramban, disagrees with the Rambam, and counts a mitzvah to build an Aron, unlike the other utensils. The Rambam disagrees, because he says it's not a function of whether there's a mitzvah associated with the utensil in order to imply its construction. He says, if there's an overarching mitzvah, and there's an overarching mitzvah to build God's house, to build the Mishkan. And if you have to build a house, you're not going to have a house without furniture. So all the furniture is implied within the commandment to build the house. And so for the Rambam doesn't count any, mit- any utensil, including the mitzvah of building an Aron. There's a big discussion about this in the Megillus Esther, another one of the commentaries on the Rambam Sefer HaMitzvot, asks on the Ramban, why would he count the mitzvah of making an Aron? True according to the Ramban's logic. The Aron has no mitzvah, and therefore you should count its construction as a mitzvah. Right? We said the menorah, there's a mitzvah to light it. So even the Ramban agrees, you don't have to count the mitzvah to build it. But the Aron, the Ramban said, there's no mitzvah. Since there's no mitzvah associated with the Aron, you have to count a mitzvah to build it. Ask the Megillus Esther, but you only count a mitzvah when there's, it's in perpetuity, when there's the potential to repeat it. And we know there's never again a mitzvah to build an Aron in the future. The one that Moshe made and constructed was the one that was taken all over, lasted for all the wars, was conquered by the Plishtim and returned to the Jews. It was used not only in the first base of Mikdash, even in the Bayasheni before it disappeared. Remember, which is... The Aron... Right in, in the Bayesheni. It will be used again. It's buried right now underneath the Temple Mount somewhere. Well, the, right. Indiana Jones. But it's, bil- it's buried right now. 
It's buried right now underneath the Temple Mount. Um, and it's the same exact oral that's going to be used in the Bayat Shlishi, in the third base of Mikdash. So I asked the Megillus Esther and the Ramban, true, there's no mitzvah associated. So you, I understand your logic, Ramban, that there should be a mitzvah to build it. But you've got another detail which is that you don't count as a mitzvah, something that will never be repeated. And the Aron was a one-time mitzvah to build one Aron that was used and will be used again for the Bayash Lishi. So why are you counting it? And there's a big discussion and a defense of the Rabban, not for now. I'm just bringing that to your attention. So let's get into the Pesukim that I want to discuss today. Perich uh, Pasuk Yitzayin, which is I think where we left off last year. Perachafei, chapter 25, verse 17. It uh, also corresponds with the beginning of the second Aliyah, Sheni, and it is on the top of page 448, 449, in the stone Chumashim. Says the Torah, right? Where are we? The Torah has just finished telling us about the building of the Aron, of the Ark, and now it goes on to the cover of the Ark. V'yasisa kaporez zahav tahor, Make a cover of pure gold, two and a half amos in length. An amma is about a foot and a half. And an amma and a half in width. That's the cover. The cover is made out of pure gold. And on this cover, make uh, two kruvim of gold. It should be hammered out of the same gold. So you don't make a gold slab, which is the cover, and then separately construct two angelic figurines to glue on top, but rather you take one solid piece of gold and hollow it out to make the kruvim as emerging from the one solid piece of gold. Tremendous artisanship, tremendous craftsmanship. Very difficult thing, I imagine, to do, but that's what they were commanded to do. One crew from this end and one crew uh, from the other end form the cover of the Aron. You make the Kruvim at the two ends. And the Kruvim will be with their wings spread apart. These angelic finger rings with their wings, not by their side, but the wings are are extended, are spread upward, covering the cover with their wings, with their facing towards one another, ish el the two kruvim are facing one another, towards the cover shall the faces of the kruvim be. And then you take this cover and you put it on top of the aron. And then in the aron you place the edus. What's the edus? The luchos ha'edus. The, uh, the, 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 uh, ta- the tablets. That will be our meeting place. And that's, God says, where I will speak to you from. You will hear my voice emanating from the covering of the ark. My voice will come, will kind of echo from between these two figurines. That's on the ark. Everything I command you and by extension, B'nai Yisrael. Okay, those are the Pesukim I want to look at today. Let's take it from the top. Let's start with Rashi. Rashi is always a good place. Kaporas, Yudzayin Vasisa Kaporas, make a Kaporas. How would you translate Kaporas? Look how the article translates it. Make a cover. But it's kind of strange. I mean, why use that word for cover? Kaporas. Rashi translates it. He's also obviously bothered. What's a kaporis? It's a kisui. It's a covering. Kisoi ala aron shaya pasuch mamala omanicho alav kimindaf. The aron was made. It wasn't like a slit on top of the a mailbox. It was hollow on top. In other words, it had four sides and a bottom, but it was open on top. So it needed a covering, and the covering is called the kaporis. Why is a covering called the kaporis? Why not call the covering a kisui? Pot covers, you know, you'd call it a kisui. Why are you calling it a kaporis? We'll have to see. Right, the Ibn Ezra. The Ibn Ezra says as well, Vasisa kaporis, make a kaporis. Kidmus mechase. In the image, looking like a covering. Vamar yafaski kamo lechaper alav. 
It's, it's more than just covering the ark, says the Ibn Ezra. It's also covering up your sins. The Aron is a mechanism, it's a, me, it's a medium, it's a catalyst through which to achieve kapara, to which to achieve atonement. So the covering that completes the Aron is the medium to achieve kapara, to achieve atonement. Kisui chata'a. Okay, so that's the Ibn Ezra. Continuing in Rashi, what do you put on top? Kruvim. What are these Kruvim, says Rashi? Demus pirtsuf tinok lahem. The face of these angelic figurines looks like whom? Not a retiree in South Florida. Not that there's anything wrong with the beautiful angelic faces of the retirees of South Florida. But the face of the Kruv was pirtsuf demus pirtsuf tinok. A young child. What does a young child immediately conjure up? What's the first word you think of? Innocence. Innocence. If we play a word association, I say child, you'll say innocence, purity, innocence. That's what the Kruvim looked like. It was made, Miksha Taaseh, says Rashi, don't construct them separately and then attach them on top of the cover. Like the way Tzorfim. Anyone shop at Tzorfim in Israel? The best silver? That's where it, Tzorfim, that's where it, Tzorfim are those who work with metal. So unlike the metal workers who sep- make the, the metal separately and then What's the word you use? Uh, weld. weld. Thank you. Weld it together. Right? But rather hammer it out. Think about it. The surface area of two kruvim is a large surface area. So the original piece of gold you need to use is going to be huge. Because you've got to take a huge surface area piece of gold and then hammer out hollow kruvim with extended wings leaving enough to create the remainder of the covering. So Rashi says, that's going to be a huge slab of gold. Glad it wasn't at the price as it is today. Hammer it with a hammer and leave it hollow in the middle. And its wings, its head extends upward. And it looks like it's extending. The kruvim are not, are not they're three-dimensional essentially. The three-dimensional extending from the top of this slab. Continue with Rashi. Mina kapores. Mina kapores. Atma tases akruvim. Again, he repeats the same concept. These kruvim are constructed out of the same piece of gold. Okay, so that's the beginning of Rashi. We'll come back. Look at the... Uh, Look at the Kliyakar. Vasisa Kaporis. We asked why it should be called a Kisui. It's a covering. Why is the covering of the Aron of the Ark called a Kaporis? Why not just call it a Kisui, a covering? So says the Kliyakar of Lunches. Kisui Malmala, Remesh Etzarech Lechasos Sodos HaTorah Shilo Legalosom Berabim. Kidvarim Shakisa Atik Yomin Al Tegala Osam. What did the Aron represent? What was housed in the Aron? The Torah. The Luchos. The Luchos. And ultimately the first Torah. Also. And actually also the Mun. There was a jar of Mun. Which was placed. In perpetuity. When we, when we will rediscover the Aaron one day, we will find the jar of Mun. That will not have... Uh, it will not have uh, decayed or molded. Kinwa, tofu, I don't know exactly. Right, the jar will have a big OU. Who knows what it will look like. So, in the jar, yeah. Recyclable plastic jar. So, um, so the Aron though represents Torah. It's, it's the symbol of Torah. In fact, more specifically, it's the symbol of Torah Shebechsav. The menorah is the symbol of Torah Shebechsav. All of the utensils in the Mishkan symbolize different components and aspects of Jewish life. And, and inspiration. So the Aaron is all about Torah. And it makes sense. The Aaron houses the Luchos. The Luchos are the Ten Commandments, the Ten Sayings. They are the, 
the, they, they capture the experience of Harsinai, of Matan Torah, of having received the Torah. Says the Kliyakar, the idea of a covering over the Aron and its great significance is the idea that we should cover the secrets of Torah. The Torah is precious and a precious commodity and the more a commodity is precious and that you cherish it and value it, the less exposure you give it, the more you hold it dear. Right? The, the most expensive jewelry you own, you don't wear on a regular basis. It sits in your safety deposit box and maybe comes out for special occasions. The more information about you, your, your, your um, net worth and so on, the more you think that something, the more private you keep it. So the Gemara actually has an expression, Blessing only rests on things that are hidden from the eye. The more we expose something, the more it's subjected to Ayin Hara, which the way Rav Shechter explained Ayin Hara when he was here a few weeks ago, that Ayin Hara elicits other people's jealousy, who they then call on God to examine our merits. Are, real, are we really worthy? So the more flashy we are, and the more ostentatious we are, the more we welcome people to say to God, how come that person has all that stuff you know, that I think I deserve? And God says, you know what? Let me, let me check their file. Why do they deserve all that stuff? So when we're ostentatious, it's not that Ayin Hara is some voodoo thing that somebody can wish poorly upon us and give us the heebie-jeebies and therefore, God forbid, we get sick or die or our stocks plummet. People don't have that power. We don't believe that. Nor do we believe that any red string can protect us from Ayin Hara. Red string is Darchei HaAmori. The Tosefta says it's absolute superstition, nonsense, ridiculousness, has no basis in Judaism. Real Ayin Hara is the notion that people have the capacity to elicit God's judgment against us. So we'd rather keep a low low profile. God's being good to us. Enjoy it. Say thank you. Don't remind God and force Him to examine should He be that good to us. That's what Ayin Hara is about. So the more something is precious, the more precious a commodity, the greater the value it has, the more, I don't want to say secretive, but the more private, the more modest, the more low-key, the more under wraps you keep it. So the same is true with our Torah. Our Torah is not intended to be accessible to all. In fact, there is actually a prohibition. Someday we'll uh, learn about this together. There is a prohibition to teach Torah to non-Jews. Torah is a precious commodity of the Jews. What does that mean? Is that true for the written Torah, only the oral Torah, how to, you know, isn't, didn't God give us the Torah to be a light unto nations and take those very values and ideals and share them with the world? So, again, it, it's, it's not for now, it's a long topic. How do we frame that? What are the rules of the limitations of teaching Torah to the non-Jewish world? But there are limitations because God shared this precious gift with us and we're not supposed to share it with the entire world. So the Kliyakar says the symbolism of the significance of the cover of the Aron is, this, is to symbolically remind us to cover Torah. Not to teach Torah in a very um, public way. And the image, the Kruvim, the cherubs were shaped like angelic figurines. They were angelic figurines with the face of, of children. Why? Laharos to teach us something. There's a pasuk in the Navi Malachi that says, Hashem the, the, the pasuk in the, in the Navi describes, it compares a teacher of Torah, a teacher of Torah to an angel. And the Gemara derives from here, the Kliyakar is really quoting the Gemara, but doesn't reference it. The Gemara says, if your Rebbe is Doma Lamalach, if your teacher resembles a, a, an angel, is pure, kind, sympathetic, and so on, clean from sin, then Torah Yavakshim seek Torah. But if the Rebbe is Eina Doma Lamalach, if the Rabbi who's teaching Torah you find is, is, is ruthless, is unkind, is insensitive, is cruel, doesn't have integrity, speaks Lashon Hara, is mean to his wife or his children, and doesn't pay his taxes. This is a very critical statement in, in our rabbis, of our rabbis. 
what, what it's teaching, and not only of rabbis, by the way. It's true of all Jewish leaders. It's true of female teachers. Mechanchos as well. And the, what's the message? A very powerful one. Torah to us is not simply content, curriculum, knowledge. If Torah were just about knowledge, anyone could teach it to us. Anyone would qualify to teach it to us. But Torah is values. It's ideals. It's a way of life. And we're not interested in learning from someone who themselves is a hypocrite. If they're duplicitous, if they're inconsistent, they can't teach it to us. In fact, that's what these... This Parsha, all of these utensils were composed of... Many of these utensils were fashioned, layered with gold on the outside and gold on the inside. Why? Gold on the outside, I understand. You want the utensil to be beautiful. This is God's house. The furniture should shine. Why on the inside? Who cares what it looks like on the inside if it's rarely never opened? The answer is... Tocho Kiboro. The inside doesn't look like the outside. The outside's worthless. If the inside doesn't look like the outside, then the outside is worthless. By the way, there's a fantastic word. If that's the case, then why not make it at all out of pure gold? Many of the utensils were made out of acacia wood, I'd say shitim, and then layered with gold on the outside and layered with gold on the inside. But once you're going to make it with gold on the outside and inside, why not make it with gold all over? So I once saw a magnificent interpretation. I forgot who. I forgot who. The answer is that metal is not pliable. Metal is rigid. And the truth is when it comes to our convictions, we should be rigid. We should be strong. But on the inside, we should be like wood, which is flexible and pliable. A human being has to have a certain amount of flexibility, has to be willing to bend, has to be willing to compromise. So these utensils... If they resemble the Talmud Chacham, Tocho Geboro, the inside should be like the outside. True, there has to be an element of metal, of inflexibility, of convictions, of resolve, of being resolute, of tenacity. But we also need to be like wood, that there's a certain level of flexibility, of being able to, being able to bend as well. How do we get into this? Oh, the Kliyakar. So, Im, if, if the, as the Kliyakar writes, Imarav Doma Lamalach Hashem Tzavakos. Then If the Rebbe resembles an angel, if the Rebbe practices what they preaches, and by the way, this is a huge and awesome responsibility on every teacher of Torah to make sure that they are practicing what they're preaching, to make sure that they are above board, to make sure that they try to be sensitive and kind and have integrity. Because if not, don't request Torah, don't be, don't be their student, don't sit at their feet. So therefore, says the Kliyakar, these angelic figurines that adorn the Ark, which stands for Torah, were made with the face of an innocent child to teach us that we only should seek Torah, if the Ark resembles Torah, only seek Torah from someone who has the innocence of a child, the purity of the child, who is similar to an angel like the Kruvim. These angelic figurines, who for the Kliyaka represent the teachers of Torah, they first of all looked like angels. That's lesson number one. They had the face of children, they had the purity, and the sweetness, and the innocence. That's what Torah teachers should have as well. That's lesson number two. Lesson number three is, their wings extended upward towards heaven... They had an allegiance and a loyalty and a commitment and a passion to heaven. But where did they face? Each other. But they also had a connection to man. If your Rebbe's head is in the clouds, can't connect, can't relate, is not accessible, not a good Rebbe. If the Rebbe is too accessible, just one of the guys hanging out, not a good Rebbe. The Rebbe has to have wings that extend upwards to heaven, but face the people and be able to be the bridge between the two. A beautiful Kliyakar. Their responsibility is to remember that they adorn the Ark. Ultimately their job, these Kruvim, the rabbis, teachers of Torah, is to communicate the messages of Torah, not to seek their own ego, not to seek their own personal gain, not to advance their own acclaim and uh, esteem. Rabbi Fahim Zalman Lunches lived in, um, not Lud, he lived in the Nell. 
tell you one of the best kept secrets. If you actually look in the back of the Arts Kroll Chumash, you have a biography of all of the commentaries. Which is a very good thing to have at your fingertips. Kliakar. Rav Shlomo Ephraim Lunchitz, 1550 to 1619, Lemberg, Rosh Hashiva in Lemberg, and Rabbi in Prague, one of the leading Polish rabbis of the early 17th century. Maybe this comment was uh, influenced by his opinion of his colleagues, experience of his colleagues. Who knows? But he was a he was, sure he was a, a functional rabbi. So that's the Kliyakar's interpretation of what's going on here with the Kruvim. A very beautiful interpretation. The Balaturim, Rav Yaakov ben Asher. In Pasuk Yerches, Shnayim Kruvim Ufnayim Yishalachiv, Kmo Shnei Chaverim Shenosim Venosim Bedivrei Torah. He says the image of the Kruvim is not Torah teachers with their responsibility and all of the symbolism of, of wings upward and looking at each other and purity and so on. He says the image is like two friends who are spending their time talking in Torah. So why is the cover of the Aron two Kruvim facing each other? To tell us that Torah is something which should be at the conversation piece of the Jewish people. Another one of the incredible Divrei Torah. You know, the Torah, um, the Aron, had, had loops on the side with rods that went through in order to transport it. Many of the other utensils also had rods, but when you arrived at the destination, you slid them out and removed them. The Aron always had them in. You never removed them. Why didn't you ever remove them? So I think it's Rav Hirsch, Rav Shimshon Rafal Hirsch, I believe, has a beautiful interpretation, which is that the Aron is transportable. The Aron is, it's, it's relevant and ready to go wherever we are. It's the message of the mobility, the global significance of the Aron. It's relevant and significant um, and teaches us everywhere and at all times. So that means not only in the Mishkan, wherever we are. So that's the imagery, says the Balaturim. The two Kruvim that adorn the Aron are to symbolize that Torah is not just for the Mishkan. Torah is not just for the base Medrash. Torah is not just for Shir or the Shul. Torah is, you're talking to a friend, you share a Dvar Torah, you mention a Dvar Torah. It's the Mishnah and Pirkei Avos. Two people who eat Torah and don't share, you know, Shnayim Shnachlu Ve'im B'neim Dvar Torah. Two people who, who are eating and they don't have a Dvar Torah. Shlosha Sha'achlu, the mission of Pirkei Avos, lists us off. What? Yeah, it's like they ate Chazir, they ate... The mission is very strong in encouraging us. Don't think when you're having lunch, it's a purely mundane act. It should be a lunch and learn. In that lunch, in that lunch, you know, beginning, the end, somewhere in the lunch, let me share a Dvar Torah before we bench, before we end. That what? Yeah, yeah, to live with it. Okay, let's continue. Rashi mentions Pasuk Chavalaf. The Pasuk, you know what, actually, let's not continue with Rashi. Let me share with you another thing. The Gemara in Baba Basra. The Gemara in Baba Basra says the following. Gemara Baba Basra, Daftzadi Tes. 99a. Says the Gemara Baba Basra the following. Ketzura Yoomdim. How did these Kruvim stand? What did they look like on top of the Aron? Now you'll ask, why is the Gemara asking that question? Don't we have a Pasuk that just told us? So in a moment you'll see why. Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Lazar. We have a Machlokas between two Amoraim. Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Lazar. Chad Amor Pneim Yishelachiv V'chad Amor Pneim Labayas. One said the Kruvim faced one another. And the other says the Kruvim faced away from one another. The one who says they faced one another, what do you do with the verse in Divrei Ayamim that says that they didn't face one another, they faced out? Answers the Gemara. They answer, you know what, these Kruvim pivoted. They were on a pivot. When God was satisfied that the Jewish people were loyal, into the relationship with Him, they faced one another. When God felt that we lacked loyalty, we were dismissing and disregarding God's word, they faced away from one another. The Kruvim miraculously would pivot in a way that would reflect God's satisfaction with how the Jewish people are doing. That's the first opinion. Second opinion says, 
So that's how we reconcile. So the first opinion reconciles the contradiction in the verses by saying they're both true. They're both true. Sometimes they faced one another when God was happy. And when God was unhappy with us, they faced apart. Ah, the one who said they faced the wall. Haksiv, the Pasuk in our Parsha, Parsha's Truma says, Ufneim Ish El Achiv, they faced one another. Demetzade Atzudei, he answers, you know what the answer is? It's not that they faced each other or faced apart from one another, they half and half. Right, what is half and half? Rashi says here in the Gemara, Kitzas Labayis, Uktzas Zelazeh, a little bit towards one another, and a little bit away from one another. Like a person is talking to their friend but looks over there. So that the bodies face one another but the heads looked elsewhere. Or the heads were towards one another but the bodies were elsewhere. So how did he reconcile the two verses? Half and half. Half and half. So the... Rav Chaim Velazhner, Rav Chaim Velazhner, the great student of the Gra, the Vilna Gon, explains in his Nefesh Achayim, according to the second way of understanding, what does it mean they were half and half? It means the Gemara has a machlokas. Gemara Barachas has a debate. Should a person learn all day? Or should a person work? Learn all day? Or should a person work? So the Rav Chaim Velazhner explains that this machlokas was lishitasam was consistent with the debate in the Gemara Brachos what a person should do. First Tana says when they act good, they're dvukim because he holds really B'nai Yisrael should be able to learn. Really we should be able to exclusively learn all day and let the rest of the world provide for us and support our contributing spirituality to the world. The other Tana, Rabbi Shmuel says you have to work also. And that that's the ideal, to do something midway, to work a little bit. And to learn a little bit. And that that's not a compromise, but that's actually an ideal unto itself. So that's the imagery of the Kruvim, half facing Hashem, but half not facing Hashem. Half the time learning, but also having an occupation. So therefore he says that that's the imagery of these Kruvim, is this question of the Kruvim facing one another, or only half facing one another, is consistent with the debate in Brachos, is the ideal for the Jewish people to exclusively learn Torah all day, and therefore the depiction of the Kruvim as the Jewish people and Hashem only facing each other makes sense? Or is the ideal for us to work part of the day and learn part of the day, and therefore the depiction of us half facing Hashem and half facing us away is the one that makes sense? If that's the case, then he asks, I understand why one of the Kruvim is half facing Hashem and half facing away. But shouldn't the other Kruv only face because the other one represents whom? Hashem. Hashem is not working half the day. Hashem should face one, and the other one should be half and half, because half the time is facing Hashem, and half the time is working. So you know what Rechaim Velazhner answers? Hashem is our mirror image. To whatever degree we turn to Him, He turns back to us. So if the Kruv that represents us is pivoted to only be turning towards Him halfway, then Hashem reciprocates by only turning towards us us halfway. Hashem reciprocates and responds to us as a mirror image of how we relate to Him. The way that we relate to Him. So, I'll tell you something incredible. The Gemara in Yuma says, Gemara in Yuma and Daf Mem Dalad, that Rav Katina says, when the Jewish people would approach the Mishkan, the Beis HaMikdash, when they would come for Aliyah Laregel, when they would come three times a year, and they would go into the Beis HaMikdash, they would pull the paruchas open, they would pull the curtain open, and be able to see the Aron. What did they see? The Kruvim were intertwined one with the other, hugging in an embrace, showing the love of the Jewish people. And at that moment, they would feel the love between a man and a woman. They would feel the love, the connection, the intimacy with Hashem. 2,000 years ago, when Titus destroyed the Beis HaMikdash, he conquered the base of Mikdash. And he came in. They breached the wall. They ransacked the Heichel. They came to the Holy of Holies. When they opened the curtain, what did they find? Not Titus. It was the Babylonians. What did they find? Says Reich the Gemar Yuma. When the Babylonians entered the temple, they saw the Kruvim. What would you expect? Facing one another or facing apart? What? I would have expected to see them facing apart. Right? 
Well, if God's deciding it's worthy of destroying the base of Mikdash because the people are misbehaving, then why, would they be then why would they be together? It must mean God is dissatisfied. If He's dissatisfied, the imagery of Him being dissatisfied is the Kruvim facing away. <laughs> Says the Gemara and Yuma, they were facing one another. Why were they facing one another? So the Bnei Yisachar of Tzvi Alimelech Shapira, the great Hasidish Rebbe in the 19th century, he says the following. The Kruvim were facing one another because what happened? The relationship of the Jewish people and Hashem had grown stale. We were not making the effort. What do I need your empty platitudes? What do I need your empty carbonos? What do I need your cars and your roses and your chocolates? But you don't mean it when you say you love me. You don't care about my needs. You don't care about my opinions. You're not responsive in my relationship. What do I need your empty words, God says? The relationship had grown stale. And therefore, God said, you've withdrawn from me. I'm going to withdraw from you. The base of Mikdash was poised to be destroyed. The people had stopped torn, turning towards Hashem. So Hashem says, I'm done turning towards you. I'm not going to go through the motions. I'm ready to destroy the Beis HaMikdash. So why the embrace of the Kruvim? So the Bnei Saskar says something amazing. He says, both Hashem and the Jewish people recognized at that moment that they had grown apart. You see, in a relationship, there's a window of opportunity to save the relationship. When both parties feel and sense and are aware, keenly aware of the distance then they can save the relationship. So in that moment, says the Bnei Saskar, the Jewish people, right, the Beis HaMikdash still needed to be destroyed. There needed to be a period of separation. Tragically, it has lasted way too long, 2,000 years. There needed to be separation. But right as the separation was about to happen, both parties, the Jewish people and Hashem, recognized how tragic it was to feel the distance. And at least the awareness of the distance could restore a sense of longing for connection and that's that last hug, the last embrace. It was the final, precisely when Hashem withdraws from His children, He parts with a hug to show His hope and His desire of being able to reunite again. So the Kruvim were intertwined even at that moment that our enemies were able to conquer the Beis HaMikdash. Even at that moment. I'll tell you, when I think of the Kruvim, I think of, and I shared this once in a drasha, and I'll end with this. There's a... Um, there's an incredible psychologist, actually, he and his wife, John and Julie Gottman. I've quoted them uh, often. I went to a seminar with them. It was fantastic. I don't have time right now to tell you all about them. John and Julie Gottman, buy their books. It's fantastic. If you have a healthy marriage, that's why you should buy their books. It'll become even healthier. If you have an unhealthy marriage, definitely buy their books. To a 94% accuracy, they are able to, when meeting with a couple, determine whether they're going to be married or divorced within the next four years. Wow. To a 94 degree percent accuracy rate. And they're really scientists, they're researchers. They're, they're, not, they're not, you know, pop psychology fly by night. How do they do that? Because their entire career, more than 30 years, they videotaped couples in interviews. Not just of failing marriages, but of healthy marriages. And by following and tracking these video interviews over long periods of time, they could identify what were the flags that showed the couples that were going to get divorced? What were the patterns what were the characteristics? What were the behaviors? And what were the behaviors that strengthened the marriage that couples would stay together? They identified four behaviors that can almost perfectly predict divorce. They called them the four ugly heads of the horseman. I forgot exactly the term. Four behaviors that can almost perfectly predict divorce. So that if you see a young couple or a couple at any age and, and they are exhibiting these behaviors, there's very little chance of this marriage enduring. And then on the other side, there are seven positive behaviors that if you see these seven positive behaviors being kept, then they're generally responsible for a healthy marriage. So we don't have time to go through all of them, but I'll tell you one of the surprising ones that they came up with. Their research revealed essentially that loving romantic relationships are not maintained as we would think by expensive vacation getaways, lavish gifts, expressions of romance, chocolates and flowers and love yous. But happy couples keep their love alive through small, everyday gestures and acts. Right? After a long day of work, a husband or a wife walks through the door, what happens? So usually one turns towards the other to greet them. Or do they not? Just do they keep going about their business and not even notice the other one's there? And when one turns towards the other to greet them, 
What's the response to that greeting? So Gottman's research revealed that as a listener, there's one of three ways that we could respond to another person's bid for connection. What does it mean, bid for connection? It means I say to you, how was work today? Or I come in from the mall and I expect you to say to me, how was the mall? Did you buy anything? There's one of three ways that we can respond to a bid for connection. Number one is to turn against. Turn against means to respond in a crabby, irritable, or critical way. Why do you waste your time with that activity? Why do you keep spending money? Why do you keep going to the mall? To respond in a, in a negative way is to turn against. Second way you could respond is what's called turn away, which is essentially to ignore the bid for connection. It's not hostile. It's just you lose points from the emotional bank account. You know, so you're busy watching TV, or you're busy cooking dinner, or you're busy folding the laundry, or you're busy on the internet, and the other person walks through the door and they say, Hi! And you say, Hey! And you don't even turn your head. You just keep doing what you were doing. That's turning away. And the third and final way is what he calls turning towards, which is in a responsive, interested, and loving way. And that adds points. That's a deposit in the emotional bank account. Oh, that sounds so interesting. Tell me about it. What happened in your day? Show me what you bought. How was your shopping? Whatever the case is. Here's what he discovered. Successful relationships were characterized by a 20 to 1 ratio of positive bids and turning toward the partner for every one negative bid or turning against or away from the partner. 20 to 1 ratio is what's necessary for a healthy marriage. 10 to 1 ratio... Not necessarily a great marriage. 20 to 1 ratio of stopping what you're doing to look and greet, of taking an interest, of responding to the bid. He showed us these videos in this kind. It was unbelievable. You know? A guy is there. He's looking out the window. at something. His wife walks through the door. He's talking to him about something significant. Bid, right? By the way, turning away or against could even include that you're answering questions. The guy continues to look. His wife is talking about our kid. What do you think we should do? We're having these problems. And the guy is just still looking out the window. He's answering her. But it's clear he's not making her feel. He's turning towards. So relationships are made or broken by the ratio of this idea of turning towards, turning away, or turning against. Marriages fall apart because of indifference, apathy, and growing apart. So when I think of the Kruven, it's exactly that image of the notion of turning towards and turning away. Hashem, our relationship with Hashem too, we turn towards Him. God sends messages, He sends sends a bid. God has a bid for connection all day. How often do we turn towards His bid for connection? Do we turn away? Do we turn against? And the Kruven captured that. Did the Kruven face one another? Did they turn away from one another? And that's something for us to think about. Have a great Shabbos.